Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altiger show lots of good questions and i don't think i gave the answers people were expecting but Should one be an entrepreneur or an employee? Sometimes the answer is not quite so obvious. Should what, if you have a great idea, should you do a book or a podcast? Again, I don't think I gave the answer the person was expecting. And what's the role of mentors in your life? These questions and more, enjoy the episode. How are you? Good. What have you been doing today? I've been working on the fourth generation of edits for my book. That's cool. Yeah, so what people usually don't realize is that you finish a book and you're all happy and you send it off to the editor and then you work on that, you rewrite, you come up with new ideas, you have a whole next generation of the book and then you send it off, you're very proud. And she sends it back two weeks later and there's a whole new generation of edits that you have to make and changes and so on. And so now I just finished the fourth generation of edits. Each time I think to myself, this is it, this is done. But then this is the good thing about having a good editor. She makes changes and suggestions. And I realized, oh yeah, this could be a little bit more clear. This sound, this is a good change. So I I just finished the fourth generation of edits for my next book called Skip the Line, coming out next March. Very happy. Uh, Good to see everybody here. So uh, I want to point out something. I um, I made a, a kind of a joke on Twitter. Not really a joke. It's actually true. Uh, 
if you ever had a corporate job, I don't even know, you've never had a corporate job, I don't think. Not once in your life, right? Like you started your hair salon when you were very young. Yeah. You built it up to 70 uh, employees yeah. in Austin, Texas. You sold it. Then you moved, started moving to Africa and China and Kuwait and so on. So you, you're, you're so lucky. You've never had a corporate job. For anyone, a lot of people say, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. Or, oh, I want to be a writer. I want to get out of the corporate grind. You know what people really want to escape? And this is the truth. That what you really want to, uh, you, what you really want to escape is nobody wants to shit next to their boss. It's a true story. Like, you, 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 when I was at a corporate job, I worked at HBO. On my floor, there were about 200 cubicles. So we're all in these cubicles. It's like each cubicle has a little cluster of cubicles. So around my cubicle, there were six other cubicles. And then you're in these clusters of six or eight cubicles. And there's one bathroom for the entire floor. So you go to the bathroom and there's like maybe five stalls for 200 people. And, you know, or 100 people, half men, half women. And, but my boss, my boss's boss, his boss and his boss, we were all on the same floor. So the odds were, if I went to the bathroom at 2 p.m., you know, a reasonable time after lunch, that my boss might also be, like if I went to the bathroom every day at 2 p.m., once a week, I'd probably run into one of my bosses in the bathroom. And that is the worst. Can you just just picture it? You've never had a corporate job, but just picture it. Can you imagine? I don't really want to picture it. <laughs> but can you imagine? <laughs> okay, try to picture it. That's the problem. <laughs> Try to picture it. Do something that puts you, makes you a little uncomfortable in life. Can you picture how, can you picture shitting next to your boss? So you're both in the stalls next to each other and just making all those sounds. Like, have you ever, have you ever actually. I'm not going to answer any questions about any have, of Have you ever shot in a public asked. place? I'm just not going to answer. Okay, any but this though, this one. I'm just not going to answer. No, this is nothing. To, have you ever shot in a public I, I'm place? I'm not going to talk about it. All right. Well, it's worse. It's like, imagine shitting in Port Authority in New York City. Okay, there's maybe like some homeless people next to you and then some other guy and occasionally somebody, you know, I don't know, whatever. And uh, uh, then, but, make, but it's much worse because now it's all people you know. It's, if it's not your boss, it's your coworkers. But, even, but again, if it's your boss and then you have to face them later, like, oh, hey, Bob, like, I just heard all the worst noises nobody should ever hear on the planet. And now we're going over this Excel spreadsheet. That's the real reason people don't want a corporate job. Okay. <laughs> and then they say, and then everybody goes on Twitter and says, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. And being an entrepreneur is hard. Like, yes, there, there's, there's a lot of benefits to being an entrepreneur. But when you're an employee, here's the great thing about being an employee at a corporate job. You just have one boss. And you, you kind of have an easy job to do. Like most people who work corporate jobs, you're not really being paid enough to kill yourself for work. Right. Okay. You, you have your little job. Like when I worked a corporate job, I had to write some software. I wrote, I wrote the software in a day, two days, and then my job was to maintain it. So I really had like no work to do for a year other than to maintain this software that never broke down. But they couldn't let me leave because what if the software broke down after mm -hmm. I left? So, so a corporate job has good things going for it, but two major problems, two major problems, shitting next to your boss and your coworkers don't have to respond. <laughs> and the other, the other thing is you don't really make what you're worth. Like, let's say you create 
a million dollars in value for your job. Okay. Like if someone created a million, let's say you had your business, you, you had a hair salon business. Mm-hmm. Let's say one of your employees created a million dollars in value for you. Mm-hmm. How much money would they make? Well, it, de- it just depends on uh, what sort of deal we, you know, set up with them. I mean, they're all different. But, but like, let's just say on average. 50%. So they would make like $500,000. Right. So if you're at a corporate job, and so my first corporate job, my salary was $27,200. And I got one raise a year later. I got a raise from $27,200 to $27,800. And then I worked at HBO and I got a raise there to $40,000. So I thought I was rich on that salary in New York City. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even afford to live in the city. I shared an apartment with Elias, uh, who was a chess hustler in Washington Square Park. We lived in a room just like this, mm-hmm. actually. He, I slept on the couch. Mm-hmm. No, I slept on the phone futon. He slept on the couch. And we were like almost as close as you and I are right now. And we were like adults. We were, he was like 30. I was 27. Mm-hmm. And that's all I could afford in New York City. I was paying 300 a month, which he stole. He never paid any rent and we were eventually kicked out. Oh, but anyway, there's two reasons someone, th- th- there's two reasons to quit your job. One is really three, but I'll talk about two. One is you don't want to shit next to your boss. That's the worst. And it's embarrassing and it's horrible. And I ruined my life because for from from eight in the morning till six PM, I would just hold it in. Like I couldn't I would not I would refuse to go to the bathroom unless I ran downstairs and across the street there was the New York Public Library. I went four stories down and I found a bathroom that I don't think anyone had used in probably 170 years. Like Alexander Hamilton was the last person to use this bathroom and then me because it was like in the rare books collection. And that's the only way I would go. But I would have to have the time. So that's one reason you shouldn't you should leave your job. The other reason, which everyone has figured out during this pandemic, is that a job is not stable. All of these people thought they had a stable job. One out of three employees one out of three in the U.S. This has never happened before. Mm. One out of three people were laid off. So they were furloughed. They were fired. They were moved to part-time or whatever. No matter what, their job was not stable. And if, you know, your, your job wasn't, your income wasn't necessarily stable if you're an entrepreneur either. But, oh, the point I was making, though, about your employee who brings in a million dollars of value and she gets paid or he gets paid mm. a half a million, I shouldn't have assumed your hairstylists who were working for you were all women. Maybe you had some men, mm-hmm. some gay men. But um, was it true? Were they mo- if, they, if they were men, were they straight again? Well, what is it, Matt? I mean, I don't know. They were all different. I'm just curious. They were all different. Some were, some weren't. All right. And you don't know, you don't know a percentage. No. All right. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. I'm, see, I'm making assumptions all over the place. <laughs> It is wrong to make assumptions. That is just bad behavior. I've just been hashtag canceled everywhere. So, but I didn't mean it. I was just saying. But anyway, a good employee who brings in a million dollars of value in an entrepreneurial business makes a half a million dollars potentially. But if you made 40,000 a year at your job, not only is your salary not stable, but Let's say I brought in a million dollars of value for HBO and probably I brought in millions and millions more, maybe tens of millions of value for HBO. My salary hasn't changed because here's all the people who need every dollar I bring into the business. 
here's all the people who need to take a piece of that dollar. And they all have to take bigger pieces than me because they all have higher status than me. So my boss at HBO, his boss, his name was Bruce, his boss, Rob, his boss, Albie, his boss, Bill, his boss, uh, Jeff, his boss, Jerry, and then his boss, which is the board of directors of Time Warner, and then their boss, which is the shareholders of Time Warner. So they all have to take their piece of that value. And then if there's anything left over, I would get the one one hundredth of a penny of every dollar uh, of value I brought in that was left over. So that's why in a company that had tens of millions, maybe a billion dollars in profits, I would make such a small salary no matter how much value I was bringing. So eventually I had to start doing, a, just to make a living, I had to start doing side hustles. I started building websites for other people. I had to turn that into a business. Then eventually the business got big enough and I didn't want to leave HBO. My dream was not to do a business. I don't like running a business. My dream was to make TV shows. I was pitching yeah. two TV shows to HBO. One was called 3AM, the other was called Blind Date. And But eventually I had to leave because I had to run my business. My business at this point had over a dozen employees. We had office space, we were growing. And I used to change into my suit in my cubicle run outside, go across the street to JP Morgan, pitch them, oh, you guys need a website, take my suit off, go back to the cubicle and play online chess all day. That was my job because I didn't have that much work to do. So while I was, and then at night I would do my 3 a.m. project. But, um, uh, so anyway, uh, I, I, I pointed out that on Twitter that, this is a big reason to quit your job. So you don't have to go to the bathroom next week. I will, I'll stop using the word shitting. So this is a big reason to quit your job. And somebody asks, somebody always asks, like it's so funny over the years, how people ask the exact same questions word for word. So someone asked, and I have it right up here, that if everyone thought the way you think, then the world would be ruined, right? And that's the question everyone always asks. And the, the the answer is, first off, no. Why do you care if everyone else in the world thoughts this way? Like, are you saying everybody needs to work at a factory or else the world would be over? And, and, and second, not everyone is going to think this way, right? That's the reason why there's so many people at corporate jobs. And people will, another person says, oh, well, it's easy to say if you've got money. I didn't have any money when I quit my job. I was, my salary was 40000 a year in New York City. So 40,000 a year, your take home pay is uh, 2,500 a month. And on $2,500 a month, you can't, you can't afford anything in New York City. A cab ride from uptown to downtown is like $80. The, the average apartment in New York, in Manhattan, at least for rent is like four or $5,000 rent. It's horrible. It's New York City is the, the worst uh, to eat lunch. Eating lunch was $15 for a sandwich and like maybe a bag of chips. Yeah. And so dinner is like $60. Going on a date is like $150. Like I couldn't afford anything ever. So I would just, I don't know. I would just, my daily activity was I'd go to this pool hall in Astoria. In, in Astoria, I'm going to um, stereotype again. But in Astoria, a lot of Greek people live there. And they had their special kind of coffee, like very strong coffee. Mm-hmm. And we in Greece, there's three types of backgammon. And we just play backgammon all night for no money. We just have fun. 
And that's what that was maybe until I met you, that was like the best time of my life. Aww. Being dirt poor, living on a yeah. food a phone futon, going to Astoria and just playing with these Greek people. Mm-hmm. We would play chess and these three types of backgammon, and we would just play all night long till like six AM and then I'd go to work again. And on the weekends I'd occasionally sleep. And because I had the HBO ID, I was able to go in a story. There was the Museum of the Moving Image. So I would watch these movie festivals every weekend for free. Hmm. Like you could get in for free. Actually, with the HBO card, you get into any museum. Wow. You get into anything for free. But I would go to this movie theater. Right. So so the point is, is that when you're stuck at a job, the value you create is not the value you take home. And when you're an entrepreneur, even a small entrepreneur, even if you're doing a side hustle, the value you create, you get to take home. If I, yeah. if, if you were, if, if you were having a wedding and I, and, and, and you wanted to have a photographer and I said, look, everybody's charging you $40,000 to photograph your wedding. I'll charge you $5,000. And they'll say, what experience do you have? And I'll say, experience, I'm charging you one eighth of what everybody else is charging. Mm-hmm. Who cares? I can use the phone on my iPhone. I can use the camera on my iPhone and I'm charging you 5,000. You know what? 4,000. <laughs> and that's, a, I get to keep a hundred percent of the value I create. I, I could say 4,000 plus pay for my mm-hmm. cab ride to your wedding. And then here's how you photograph a wedding. You make sure you get the couple in lots of different situations. You make sure you get every family member. You make sure you get every friend with the couple. You make sure you get people talking before, during, and after. You, you take a video of the wedding itself. So you take snapshots, stills from the video, and then you have thousands of photos. And then you create a little website. It's the photo website for the wedding. I, I've never even taken a photograph practically, but I could like <laughs> photograph a wedding for $4,000, no problem. But the point is, you get to keep 100% of the value you create. So if I um, if I grow marijuana in my backyard, cost me almost nothing, but I could sell it to you for, I don't know, whatever marijuana goes for $100 for a bag of gummy bears or whatever, or <laughs> joints or whatever they cost. So and then I get to keep 100% of the value. It's not like I'm working for a marijuana company mm-hmm. where I'm making $12 an hour and I get to keep that. So, mm-hmm. so that's the, that's the main reason. And, and yeah. It, and I like it, the freedom too. Yeah, the freedom. But you know, you lose a lot of freedom because again, when you, when you're an entrepreneur, you can't leave your work in the office. Like when I worked at HBO, I would leave the work in the office. I'd go to Astoria and oh, it was so freeing and relaxing. Mm-hmm. It was like every day was like the last day of high school where it's just, I had nothing to do. I want my job. My work was at the office. I didn't have homework mm-hmm. and I would play backgammon all night and drink coffee with these funny people. Mm-hmm. I always missed had like, this is why I got obsessed with poker after I sold my first company is that I love the idea of playing a game and sitting around and bandering with a bunch of people who are just insulting each other and they were funny. Yeah. So it's just, I love, like, did you ever have that moment where it's just like, you go someplace every day and it's just all the girls and guys and you just are hanging yeah. out. There's no agenda. Right. You're just hanging out and making fun of each other and yeah. having fun. Right. No, that's great. But, so, the, but, and two, you know, I had, I had freedom. I mean, in the beginning, before I had the salon and employees, I worked for myself, which is me. Yeah. You know, so I was able to leave and just be free. Right. But then so it's, there's different sorts of uh, entrepreneurship. Right. But that's a good point. That. That's a good point though. But let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Like when I, so I left HBO to start or to, to join 
the business that I had started 18 months earlier. I did not leave HBO until I had been at my business for 18 months. That's how risk averse I was. And also that's how much I wanted to make a TV show. But uh, here, but don't you feel like your customers then are your bosses? Your, your employees are your bosses because, you know, your employees, they're very important. You have to cater to their needs. You have to make sure they're developing and growing and, and advancing in life. And you have to give them things to do. So they're your bosses. Your, your, your partners and investors are your bosses. You didn't have investors. So, but your partners and investors become your bosses. Like what happened last month? You were $10 down on your growth. We right. want growth every month. Like when I was running a hedge fund, I had a, about 20 investors. And there was one period where I was up for them. I made the money 14 months in a row on the 15, well, 15, I never heard from them on the 15th month. I lost money. Every single investor called me and said, should we be worried? Like what's going on? Are you, are you in trouble? Is this a scam? I was down one half of 1% that, or no, actually I was down four tenths of 1% that month. And, and, but, but they call you there and like, should I remove my money? Like you have to like then kiss their asses and pander to them. So your, your investors are your, are your bosses, your employees are your bosses, your, your customers are your bosses, your shareholders are your bosses. It's almost like I could never leave work at work. I was suddenly from that moment. And I'll tell you the day it was September 1st, 1997 from September 1st, 1997 forever after. Yeah. No matter how much money I had or didn't have when I was going broke, when I made money, I was, I was never free again. I was more free at the corporate job than being an entrepreneur. This is an interesting point because uh, when I worked for myself and it was just me, uh, of course, when my clients are there, right, I, I work for them and I want to make them happy. And you have to win new clients too. And you win new clients, but you know, you, the best thing is to keep, your old clients happy, right? Your yes. new, the new clients will come, but just make sure your your clients are happy. And it is it is hard. And the more you charge for a service, the more they're gonna expect the service to be, you know, good, really good. And but the thing is, is that I set boundaries with my clients. So I I did not. So it <laughs> makes you know life is a lot easier when you set boundaries with everything. You set boundaries with your friends, you set boundaries with your family, you set boundaries with your kids, and you set boundaries for your clients. No. Well, that's just- I was just trying made, to set boundaries, yeah. I was practicing. But I mean, it did, it makes life so much easier because then you don't have that feeling of, oh my gosh, oh, they're gonna call me. Oh, they want me to go, oh, okay, I'll go. No, I'm not gonna do that. These are my hours and, and then, you know, they know what to expect. And uh, that's how I've always Maybe been. that's why, I mean, there's, but, but this is an important thing. There's a lot yeah. of subtleties to being an entrepreneur. It's running a business. Maybe yeah. this is what made me so unhappy as an entrepreneur is that, yes. So, so a couple of things. One is uh, maybe I didn't put the right boundaries in. So if a client called me at three in the morning and this would happen, Ugh. clients would call me at three in the morning crying because they were unhappy at their jobs and asking for my advice. And I would help them out. Like I would talk to them every yeah, morning because I would always, you do make a good point though. Your best new customers, this is such an important point about entrepreneurship. Your best new customers are your old customers. That's right. So if I needed to make more money, I wouldn't try to find a new client. I would call the old clients first or my, you know, the current clients. And I say, is there more services we could do for you? Do you need a logo to me? Do you need some software to be written? 
you need me to just run errands for you? <laughs> like I was willing to do anything for these clients. Wow. So uh, do you need a girlfriend or a boyfriend? I was doing that for my clients too. And that would like lock in the clients for life. Believe me, I've done, I've set up more customers with girlfriends and or boyfriends than any, I'm not a matchmaker, but I would do it pretty regularly. Wow. just want to see if this is, if we're getting comments or if this is frozen. Uh, I don't know. Can you guys see me, hear me? Do we have, do we have things happening? Is life happening? Um, so yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Setting boundaries is important. So, uh, but this is why, because I did not enjoy entrepreneurship so much, I think it's very important to realize, A, you got to make a lot more money as an entrepreneur and in order to justify not just sitting in a cubicle, doing surfing the web all day, doing nothing, you know, the average person at work, uh, they've done a study, the average person in a nine to five job works two hours and 53 minutes. So a day. So that's hardly anything. If you're an entrepreneur, you're working on an eight hour workday, you're working 27 hours. So you, you never, um, uh, you, you never actually get, get free from the, from the grind. But so you, you have to make sure if you make money, you enjoy it, mm -hmm. but it doesn't rule you. Like you have to just, mm -hmm. the key is to put as much money in the bank mm -hmm. and, and not, to be stingy, not to squander it, like spend on the things you enjoy, but don't, you never want to get to a point. And I'm afraid I got too much to this point, even after I had money. Once money starts to control you because you're spending too much and you have to maintain a certain lifestyle and you have to maintain a certain mm -hmm. persona, which nobody really cares about except you, yeah. you, you, you become a slave to the money and then you have to make more and then you take more risks. And that's how I would go broke every time. So now I try to make sure I'm not a slave to the money. Yeah. So um, let's see if Jay has sent me the uh, question of the day. I do want to. Um, I do want to talk about. Um, uh, so okay, good question. Uh, what do I? Th if you're a writer, what do I think about having? A, should you have a ghostwriter? And the answer is a lot of people will say no, but the answer is absolutely you should have a ghostwriter. Mm -hmm. Let's just look at the average nonfiction book. Let's say you're writing a book about sales. You're the best salesperson in the world. And every time you go into a sales meeting, you close that sale. So you want to write a book about sales to share your experience, and then you'll make more money. You'll maybe get a bigger job as a salesperson. You'll give talks. You'll have a podcast. You'll make more money in other ways. But you need to write that book to show, because people associate writing books with expertise, you need to show you're an expert in sales and you want to tell your story, but you're not a writer. The reason you're not a writer is because you you've spent your whole adult life getting really, really good at sales. It's really hard. And you've devoted your life to reading books about sales, going on sales meetings, following up on sales, getting really good at sales. It takes a long, long time to be a good writer. You have to write. I wrote in the early nineties, I wrote four novels and dozens and dozens of short stories. None of them were good. They were horrible. They were the worst things ever. If I read them out loud right now, I would be so embarrassed. I would shoot myself at the end of it. And it took me a long time to be even a decent writer. And now I'm still trying to be a good writer. So yes, if you have something important you want to say and you feel a book is the way to do it, and I highly encourage everybody to write a book, then Get yourself a ghostwriter. If, if you feel you're not the best, a good writer, if you're satisfied with your writing ability for what you want to do, then by all means, write it. 
But if you don't have the time and if you, if you don't feel like you're a good writer, get a ghostwriter. Or here's, here's an advice I gave to a friend of mine and I'm, I'm working with this friend of mine later today. Dictate your book into a recorder or, or dictate an outline. And then there are plenty of people you can hire who, well, okay, dictate your whole book into your recorder, get a transcript of the dictation, give it to an editor slash ghostwriter, and boom, within a few weeks, he'll turn it into a book. And again, within 30 or 40 days of you dictating your book out loud into a recorder, you will have a book. You can self-publish it. You can call yourself, you know, Magnificent Sales Publishing. And oh, on Amazon, Magnificent Sales Publishing just published this guy's book. You'll self-publish. Everyone will say, oh, he's got the best publisher. I've heard of Magnificent Sales Publishing. You don't know how many times you make up a name and you say it to people and people are like, oh yeah, I've heard of that. That's yeah. a great publisher. Yeah. And, um, so this is not scrolling. I just want to, I just want to see how we can scroll a little bit better. So um, uh, I know people are there, but now, oh, here we go. Magic. Oh, wow. We're scrolling. Um, so yes. So, so don't be afraid. Don't, don't let other people be your mirrors. Too often we let people be the mirror. Like I look into a mirror and I see something back. Oh, I'm making the right decision. I'm not making right, the right decision. So a lot of people will say, you can't use a ghostwriter or you can't, don't think you can write a book and not put in the time to be a good writer or, oh, if you use a ghostwriter, it's not going to be good. Who cares? No one's going to, very few people are going to read your book anyway, but you wrote a book. Right. So when you're getting your message out too. You're getting your message out. You're getting an opportunity. Like, let's say, uh, the TED conference is looking for speakers and they have two choices. The person who wrote a book and the person who didn't write a book. They pick the person who wrote a book. Mm -hmm. This is the expert. They don't ask you, well, did you use a ghostwriter? Cause we really need to know. They won't know. They will not know. They're not going to ask you who published it. Oh, magnificent sales publishing published it. Or you could say like, yeah. um, Goldman Brown, uh, published it. You know, Goldman Brown, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah. I've heard of them. They're like, I've heard of them. Definitely. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. So here's someone um, who says, uh, uh, that's a big Instagram name, uh, Meki Bosch, <laughs> Alan Dramia. Uh, she says, I would love to write my own book of my testimony of being adopted and how my experience is better, a book or a podcast. Well, what a, it's, a, it's a really good question. So you have an experience about being adopted and you want to write about your, your experience. And I'm assuming, by the way, your experience is somewhat unique from the other million people each year who are adopted. So you want to express, you know, maybe you have, you tell your story and you interweave advice to adopted kids, adopted parents, people who deal with adopted people, to people who are considering adoption. Um, and you ask a book or a podcast. The answer is, of course, and you said it already, you have to do both. Not only you, you do, you do a book. And by the way, dictate the book, get a ghostwriter or write it yourself. And by the way, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to, you don't have to sell it to a major publisher or an agent. Don't do that. If this is your first book, write a 30 page book of your experiences and self publish it on Amazon. Wait for your next book to get a publisher. I sometimes use a publisher and I sometimes self publish. Let me tell you my experience right now. I'm using for my late, late, for my next book, I'm using a mainstream publisher, HarperCollins. And six months ago, I had the idea. I picked, I went to lunch with an agent. 
She said, let's do it. Two or three months later, we had a proposal worked out. She set up meetings a month later. We did all the meetings. She had a little bit of an auction. And then, you know, then I had to write the book. Then there's edits. The book's not coming out now for till next March. So from beginning to beginning, it's a little over from beginning to end. It's a little over a year for your book to come out. And by the way, when you publish with a mainstream publisher, you need to give them 60,000 words or 250 pages. They need to get it into bookstores because they're not really sure how to market other than the, the usual distribution. So self-publishing almost always will, will get you smaller advances, but advances are going down anyway. And self-publishing will make you more money. Amazon, you get to keep 70% of the revenues. When you publish a book in publishing, you keep, I don't know, 15% of the revenues, maybe less. So depending if you use an agent or not. So don't think that the definition of a book is 60,000 words, 250 pages. I know people who write a book that's 10 pages and they self-publish on Amazon. You know, you all know probably Kamal Ravikant, good friend of ours. Uh, he wrote an excellent book, a bestseller, Love Yourself As If Your Life Depends On It. A new version came out recently, but his original version written in 2010 had 8,000 words in it. That's like 20 or 30 pages. So the definition of a book changes when you self-publish. The definition of everything has changed in this new world. The definition of a restaurant is not a location, but a menu. The definition of a book is, uh, uh, you know, any words that you want to publish on Amazon. The definition of a podcast, I could just record something, upload it to a podcast distribution site, and now I have a podcast. The definition of a TV show is I could take this video, put it on YouTube, I'm calling that a TV show. You know what? I could even... I can even load this on Amazon. I could load this video, this IG live. We could load this on Amazon, call it, you know, days of our lives by J with James and Robin. And that'll be a series on, on, uh, Amazon. And it'll look, if you search, if you search on Amazon for days of our lives, it will look like every other TV show in the search results. Oh, days of our lives. This must've been coming out with a major TV studio. And you can essentially self-publish a TV series on Amazon. Most people don't know that. I have a friend, Nick Nanton. He's a, he's won Academy Awards for documentaries and he wrote a, he made a documentary about Rudy. You know the movie Rudy? So Rudy was a movie about this kid who plays for Notre Dame in the very last play of his four-year education and he became an inspirational figure. So Nick did a documentary about the real life Rudy. Well, he couldn't find a network to pick it up. So he just uploaded it to Amazon yeah. and he sold, he's made just as much money doing that as yeah. if he had done it through NBC. Yeah. And uh, uh, if you search for Rudy, two things come up, mm -hmm. Rudy the movie and Rudy his documentary. And you can't tell yeah. any difference between the two. Wow. So I don't understand why uh, most people don't just self Right. create a TV series or a, a movie or whatever it is you want to do. Like you don't have to use YouTube. I, again, we could take this IG. We probably should do this. Actually, we should take all our IG lives, make a series on Amazon and boom, check out our series on Amazon. It's on Amazon. Who yeah, produced can, it? Like dress up in like, you know, period costumes, you know, like drunk. What is it? Drunk. Uh, uh, like drunk history. History. We could do really? drunk IG. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> drunk Q and a high Q and a. I don't know which one I would prefer, drunk Q&A or high Q&A. So, okay, going to go to the next question. But yes, you should use a ghostwriter if you want. Um, 
trick to getting more podcast followers. So by the way, I want to answer the question first. Uh, I want to continue answering the question of the person who's, who is adopted, wants to write about her experience. Should she do a book or a podcast? The answer is what I call the spoken wheel approach. I've spoken about here before. You being adopted is the wheel. That's the core, your core story that you want to tell. Now you have spokes. You should use as many spokes as possible. You write a book. You do a podcast. Maybe you interview other adopted people. Yeah. You do um, uh, 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 an online newsletter. Here's resources for parents who want to adopt, or here's resources for for kids who are adopted. So a new newsletter comes out every week, uh, and then you you on Quora, you go on Quora and you answer questions about what it's like to be adopted, and you link always to your newsletter to see more about this topic. Subscribe to my free newsletter, and then maybe you have. Uh, 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 for, okay, here's a business. Someone reads your free newsletter about adoption and now they're convinced they want to adopt and then you introduce them to lawyers who will help you adopt and you get a referral fee and then suddenly now you have a business that comes out of your free newsletter or maybe you advertise lawyers and adoption services in your newsletter. Two different business models that maybe you give your book away for free, you do your podcast for free, you give away your newsletter for free, but now I just gave you two multi-million dollar business models. People do make millions as adoption referral services. Now you do maybe an online course, how to adopt or how to be adopted or how to find your natural parents or whatever. Now you give TED Talks. Now you give talks to companies like how to treat your employees who are adopted. I don't know. And those spokes, don't they become more, they become organic too. You know, as you start, you know, you put one foot in front of the other and as you move forward, then things happen and, and doors open. And yeah. I think it's pretty cool. Absolutely. Because, because let's say you're doing your online newsletter about the experience of being adopted and you get like hundreds of the same question. Well, that suggests, oh, I should make a course around this question. So my right. newsletter is for free, but for $60, you can get my online course about how to find your ideal adopted choice right. and or whatever. Uh, so, so stuff does happen organically. Right. And then sometimes, you know, when you do a business plan or when you do something like this, it sort of puts you in a box sometimes, you know, I mean, you need a business plan to understand where you're going or where you want to go, but sometimes a business plan may not be so great or, you know, you need it to have it loose so that you can grow into a direction that may not be where you think you're going to go, right. right? Right. Well, we had a business idea a few months ago. We called it, so I'll, I'll share this. We called it a uh, tip jar. And so the idea was, is that most people in social media, um, YouTubers, tweeters, Instagrammers, most YouTubers, for instance, don't have millions of followers, so they can't make, they can't monetize their YouTube channel. But um, uh, uh, sometimes if you don't have many followers, you can still have a YouTube video that goes viral and gets millions of views, but you can't monetize it because you didn't have enough followers to monetize, to get any advertisers. So how does that person monetize? Well, if everybody had a tip jar, you could, the average person could tip them. And we thought we could build a business model around this. And instead we had idea sex between that idea and another idea. And now we're working on the other idea. So another idea that we had that we used idea sex, I, I, I'm wearing pajamas right now. And for the past three and a half weeks, it's about 17 days. No, no, about 24 days. The past three and a half weeks, I've only worn pajamas. I've not worn sure. regular street clothes at all. And I've gone outside. We've gone out to eat. We went to the protests. We, we went out to a restaurant last in night for the first time. 
in our new neighborhood, our brand new neighborhood. Yeah. And I've been wearing pajamas the entire time. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, so my point is pajamas are the most comfortable clothes. Why do we ever not wear pajamas? Why would we choose to change out of the pajamas, the clothes that we sleep in? That's how comfortable they are. Why would we choose to change out of our pajamas to wear like a suit and a tie and Spanx and whatever? I don't wear Spanx, but whatever. I don't like you. <laughs> but Spanx are those things. Sarah Blakely's been on my podcast. Yeah. Uh, it's those things that like I tighten up your mm-hmm. waist or whatever. But um, uh, why would we choose to wear anything but pajamas? So I wanted to create a line, a fashion line of outerwear that's pajamas. And you put a little designs on it to make it look like outerwear and feel a little bit more like outerwear, but it's the comfort of pajamas. And then you wanted to do stuff with copper because the antiviral properties of copper. So we thought, okay, let's make copper infused pajamas and make a whole fashion line out of that. So who knows? Maybe that's an idea. Another idea that we were working on a few months ago. And by the way, when you're an idea machine, when you write down 10 ideas a day, I have no problem sharing these ideas because most of these ideas we're never going to work on, but they're all fun. And maybe for a day or two, I think I'm going to work on them. (laughs) But I was playing cards against humanity with our kids and it was fun. It was okay. And then I was thinking, oh, what if you take, what if you take all of Trump's tweets and call it Trump versus the world and you make a version of cards against humanity and call it Trump versus the world where you have situations like Oh no, there's a pandemic, pandemic. in Wuhan. And then and everybody riots. throws down the Trump tweet and the judge of that round decides uh, which uh, is the funniest or the most applicable or whatever. So that's Trump versus the world, the card game. And we were, I had the head, the founder of Kickstarter on my podcast. So I figured, oh, we'll do a kick, cards against the humanity. They started out of a Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. So by the way, that's another spoke in the wheel. Do a Kickstarter to launch your podcast. Boom. Like everybody who's adopted, mm-hmm. you can market it on Facebook to people who are interested in adoption and everyone who's adopted will fund your Kickstarter to fund your podcast. So Kickstarter is always another spoke. But so that was Trump versus the world. We worked on it for like four days. And then we even had Sarah, our daughter, our daughter do all sorts of research on. She collected all of Trump's tweets and put them in an Excel spreadsheet by category. Uh, but we never worked on it. Uh, we never finished it. So go ahead and, and do it and, uh, and we'll play. We'll be the first customer. Um, so, so, but this is when you're saying business ideas come organically, mm-hmm. this is what happens is you do things and then you have idea sex like, oh, cards against humanity. This is kind of an easy game to make. Oh, Trump is the only thing in the news every day. Oh, Kickstarter. I'm about to have the founder of Kickstarter on my podcast and cards against humanity. They got their launch during Kickstarter and Kickstarter is a good way to seed your initial audience. Let's combine all these ideas, idea sex, Trump versus the world or pajamas is outerwear in this pandemic. You know, we realize, Oh, it's not so important that we have to go outside every day. We were all fine. Or most of us were fine sitting indoors. Oh, I'll just stay in my pajamas. Even when I go outside idea sex, copper infused, maybe we'll even do a Kickstarter for this. We'll get that first version design it. I kind of want pajamas with like stripes down one arm, kind of like my jacket. And you need like a zipper so you can hold like the wallet and it won't fall out. Mm -hmm. What else do you need in, um, in, in pajamas that are outerwear? You think? Um, nothing really. Uh, The zipper I realized I need because I was losing my credit card. Yeah. Yeah. You do that a lot. Uh, Maybe, oh, maybe like out of the side pocket, like, oh, mask, okay. surgical mask. Oh, there we go. Like a button that you can like get your, you know. Yeah. 
and so then you always have it with you. You and won't forget it. Copper infused because we're interested in things that were antiviral, and copper has all copper, silver, gold has all these antiviral properties. But copper's the cheapest. We could do silver pajamas too, but that'd yeah. be a little more expensive. Silver infused. Oh, and then your your point is yeah. silver has to be moist yeah. in order to be antiviral. I did not know that. I want to research that a little more. Yeah. But anyway, so spoken wheel is absolutely an important part of any idea. Always view a core idea as the wheel and then think of all, as many spokes as possible. So that's critical. Yeah. I could keep on talking about that, but I will answer another question. So Jane, did you have a good mentor that helped you at any time in your life? Yes. So let me ask you, Robin, did you have a mentor on the hair salon business? Yes, I did. What was she like? How did you meet her? He, uh, I, uh, met them, uh, just, I answered a, a, a job, you know, uh, it was an opening and I went in and interviewed and got the job. So I was an apprentice for two years. And then what happened? How were they your mentor? Well, they taught me. I mean, you go to cosmetology school and you learn the basics and then, but you don't really learn anything but that, you know, to be able to take the test. And then um, they taught me their, you know, their, their way. And uh, it was very difficult. That was a very difficult time. Because they were very strict and they were very, like, because, like okay, so it was called uh, Tony and Guy and um, they had just come over from uh, the UK uh, and they were, they had their very first salon in Dallas. And so that's where I worked. I worked for Tony and Guy and, uh, and their brothers, Anthony. And um, so anyway, I was there for two years and it was very difficult. They expected a whole lot. Well, what was like one of the difficult things? Uh, well, I had to work every, you know, day and I had to like until the evening into the evening and do the same thing over and over again. Uh, I had to be perfect. Um, Wait, worked to, you, you as, in, in were there clients coming like all the time? Uh, I had models, you know, that would come in and I would practice on them. And so, yeah, it was just, and if I didn't do it right, they, you know, I had to do it over again. Would they yell at and, you? Uh, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. It was, it was not easy. And, um, yeah. It was a hard time, but I learned a lot. And um, thankfully, uh, you know, they taught me everything. So uh, they're, and then, they're some of the best. But then they went, uh, you know, and they said, well, just wait. We're going to be all over the U.S. We're just going to be, we're going to go, we're going to be on fire, they told me. And sure enough, they <clears throat> opened up salons all over the U.S. And they also have their product line. TG is their product line. And so I was there from the very beginning. Uh, from uh, when they started. So it was really neat. It was a great experience. And it really did help me with my business. And um, it was great. What was the worst they yelled at you? Well, they didn't yell at me. I mean, they were just, you know, I was tired. and and But I kept, they kept on and I had to keep going. A lot of people didn't survive. I mean, that was one thing. I think they just wanted to weed out people that really weren't that interested because they were they were high demand and they only wanted the best and, and people that really wanted to learn. Like were you ever afraid of them? Like afraid? Yes. But like why? Because they were because strict of or? who they were and uh, you know they were sort of like celebrities uh, in 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 this industry. So yes. They, so you wanted to please them. Yes. All right, and then how did it end? Uh, great. I mean, I still keep in touch with them. You know and. And uh, they've good. always been able to, I've always had them 
I would call them with my business, like for help. Did um, they resent when you branched off and no, started your no, own business? Not at all. That's not key. At all. That they were great. I think I think any good mentor yeah. wants their employees to rise up and do better than them. That's the whole idea of creating the next generation right. is that the next generation should stand on the shoulders of the prior generation, right. not stand below the prior generation. Right. And I always train my assistants as well the same way. You know, I mean, that's key. If, if they don't succeed and they don't succeed me or, you know, become more successful, I failed. I feel, you know, I mean, I want to put into them and then let them grow. Yeah. And, you know, by letting them grow, uh, you know, they would always stay with me. But if they wanted to, you know, move on, that was fine. But it was very rewarding for me to see that I made a difference in in, in their uh, work ethics and stuff, you know, so they hopefully carried that on with them. Yeah. And so so to answer the question, I've had mentors every step of the way. So I, when I was in an undergrad, I had a mentor, uh, Prakash who I, I co-wrote a paper with that we presented at this huge conference in, in Germany. Um, I had a mentor in, at, at HBO. I had mentors at, uh, well, later on when I was writing about finance and, and going on CNBC more, Jim Cramer was a mentor. Uh, when I was in the hedge fund business, at, at least initially, um, uh, Victor Niederhofer was a mentor and now I'm not as much friends with him, but I'm friends with his brother, Roy. And uh, I've had mentors every step of the way in writing. Even when I wrote Choose Yourself, wasn't quite a mentor. It was more of a peer, but I did view uh, my friend Tucker Max. I, I really valued his advice and he's professionally now has a publishing company. So he was he was knows so much about writing. I was happy to to work with him. And every step of the way, I've had mentors I've also had virtual mentors. So I read an enormous amount about whatever I'm interested in. So when I started investing, I read so many books about Warren Buffett that I ended up writing a book about Warren Buffett because it's very important to have what I call a plus minus equal. So a plus is your mentor. The equals are all the people who are rising up with you. So imagine all the other hairstylists who are working for Tony and Guy, they were equals. You could trade right. notes. You could be more comfortable talking to them about ideas. Yeah. So so your plus were Tony and Guy, who you would look up to. Then you have your equals that you're rising up with. Mm -hmm. Everybody rises up in a scene. You don't rise yeah. up by yourself. Like even you look at every art artistic movement, like you look at pop art, there was Andy yeah. Warhol, there was Roy, Roy Lichtenstein, there was, you know, all the people around them. So they rose up as a scene. Uh, the, the beat movement in writing, there was Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, William S. Burroughs. They rose up as a scene. They had their mentors, but they rose up mm -hmm. as a scene together. And then you have to have a minus. So if you can't explain what you're learning, if you can't teach what you're learning, then it means you don't really understand yes. what it is that you're learning. Right. So, so I was reading so much about Warren Buffett. And I was also, I had my equals as other writers and beginning hedge fund managers. And then I wrote a book about Warren Buffett to see if I can explain what I had learned about Warren Buffett, that was, and I had a unique stance on Warren Buffett that was different from all the other books about him. But Warren Buffett was like a virtual mentor. I never met him, but I read a hundred books about him, say, or that, that's an exaggeration, maybe 10 books about him and a and, and hundred articles or more. And, uh, but I would say I never really, it never ended well with any, with most of my mentors, because I think people don't like it often when you rise up not even rise up beyond them, but when you leave to just do your own thing, people get upset. And I understand why. Leader, 
it, it might be a bad leader. I understand why they wanted more of your work, but I was always moving so fast because I was so passionate about everything I was doing. Mm -hmm. I would move much faster than the average mentee. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying this is a good or bad. Maybe I should have stayed under mentors for longer, but all of them ended up having some problems with me. Although I kind of get along with all of them now, but I can't, that hasn't always been true. Sometimes there's been bitter and angry fights. Mm -hmm. So not fights on my part, fights on their part. Mm -hmm. But, um, so I've always, I've always had a mentor, particularly as I was growing up. I wouldn't even mind mentors now. You're never too old to have a mentor for whatever, for whatever you want to get good at. You need that plus minus equal. Mm -hmm. So some, a mentor, someone to teach you, someone to explain to and equals that you can change trade notes with. So I have a lot of equals right now, yeah. not so many mentors. Um, but I wish I did actually. So I would, I would maybe the, my podcast guests are almost like virtual mentors for me. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of nonfiction writing, someone asked me who my favorite nonfiction writer is. I have quite a few. Um, again, one of the one of the smartest guys I've ever read uh, is Matt Ridley. He was just on my podcast uh, about his brand new book, How Innovation Works. Such a smart guy. Um, I, I do like Nassim Taleb's books, but I do think he's a very strange guy in person. I don't necessarily know I want to hang out with him, but... Uh, uh, and he's been on my podcast as well, but uh, I just saw him on a, a pic. He put a post of a picture of himself on an empty plane wearing three surgical masks to be extra risk averse. I think that's going a little overboard, but that, and he just constantly argues and screams at people on Twitter, which is just such a weird thing for such a smart guy. But I do recommend his books, The Black Swan, Anti-Fragile, Fooled by Randomness mm -hmm. and Skin in the Game. He has another book. It's not as good. Um, but uh, so, so I have, I have quite. A, I just finished the book "These Truths," which is a history of the U.S. by Joe Laporte. Uh, a great writer for for history. Uh, there's, I have a lot of, I have a lot of nonfiction writers that I read. Um, uh, in in terms of philosophy, I like this guy uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj, who's wrote a book called "I Am That." Uh, I. A good nonfiction writer, our, our good friend Ryan Holiday, who wrote uh, Obstacle is the Enemy, Ego, uh, Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, Stillness is the Key, and his next book's coming out in September. I liked Susan Cain's Introvert. I could go on and on. I love tons of nonfiction books. Mm -hmm. uh, my favorite fiction writers, Dennis Johnson, Charles Bukowski, Chuck Palahniuk, Tim O'Brien, Lori Moore, Amy Hempel. Uh, Susan Steinberg wrote a, 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 a not known book of short stories called Spectacle that take place in Baltimore. Um, uh, so I have a lot of good favorite fiction writers. Uh, those are all short story writers, but I have some favorite novelists too, like James Baldwin, Ernest Hemingway. Um, I'm trying to think of novels that have really blown me away recently. Not as many. I think the novel is a weird form right now because literary fiction is too much MFA taught and um, I should probably be a bigger genre reader, uh, but I'm not. Um, you're living a novel right now. Someone says Ryan Holiday is a scam. That's ridiculous. Uh, Quiet by Susan Cain is great. And you know what? I'm going to have Susan Cain on the podcast just because you said that. Uh, uh, oh, Henry for short stories. I like Oh, Henry. It's a little old school, but I like him. Around the same, a little bit after that, I like Celine, um, Journey to the End of the Night, who wrote around World War I. Um, okay, next question. How to build, this is a good question, which I don't know if I know how to answer. How to build friendships with people above you in the professional ladder. 
For example, you meet a Fortune 500 CEO and you run a tech startup, so you'd like to be better friends with someone you admire. And I deal with this all the time. Like someone comes on my podcast and uh, uh, and they say, and I think to myself, boy, I really like this guy. And a lot of the people on my podcast, they're professional, they're professionally charming. They know how to be as charming as possible. Like if someone's an actor, they know how to be as win over people. Mm-hmm. And so I think by the end of the podcast, oh my gosh, is this person my new best friend? And and then I call them up later, like thinking, hey friend, you want to go for a coffee? No one ever picks up. So it's not always the case. Sometimes people have been my, who have come on my podcast have become friends later. But in general, I usually never see or hear from them again. I feel like what's really important is that, okay, well, first of all, they may not, they may not want any more friends. I don't know. Yeah, Some they probably have a lot of friends. are very right. saturated with, with that, okay? But two is it's important to keep in contact you know, like, you know, I should do that. Thanking them for, you know, coming. Well, let's just say you thanking them for coming on the podcast. Would love to, you know, talk to you about, you know, or meet for coffee or, you know, keep up that. And I'm trying to teach that to the kids, too, like with our son, you know, the people that he meets. You know, to yeah, you do a really good them. job. Like we always introduce them to people. Yeah. So he tries, you know, I, I make sure that he keeps in contact with them so that they won't forget him you know, and he does as, it. as an example i had frank abagnale on my podcast so you might have seen the movie uh he was played by leonardo dicaprio the movie was called catch me if you can i think spielberg might have been the director um so frank the real frank abagnale came on my podcast because he was interested in cybersecurity, and so was our son john we introduced him to john and i don't keep in touch with frank john keeps in touch with him yeah. he's so good at that but you know i do think that's good i think Jordan Harbinger showed, tells me what he does, which is he'll scroll through his texts and his emails, even from way back, and he'll do four emails a day, just reaching out and saying, cool. hey, how's it going? Or, you know, and I started doing that. And uh, so, for instance, when the pandemic started, I would reach out to Mark Cuban, who I've known, I've known Mark Cuban for 21 years or more than that, 23 years. And I would reach out and I would say, hey, good job. Um, letting the employees of the Mavericks and the stadium know that you're going to keep paying them. Hey, good. I like your ideas about when you suggested you might run for president. And so just not asking for anything, but just pointing this out, he always responded. And then finally, when he was really hinting at the presidency, I said, why don't you come on my podcast? We'll talk about it. And, and I'm sure everybody would love to hear your views. Mm-hmm. And he did. And we were on the podcast like that very afternoon. So that that stuff works. And And I do have to say some people who I really admire and look up to, have become friends. Like, I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like we hang out with them, but like Gary Kasparov is a friend now. We've hung out with him a little bit. Jim McKelvey, who started Square, we, I feel like he's a friend. Mm-hmm. Some of the comedians who have been on my podcast, I feel like they're friends. Some of the writers who have been on the podcast uh, are friends. So it happens. And people want to be around people that, you know, make them feel good. Not necessarily, I mean, I think the real value in a friendship is what how they feel when they're with you. If you, if you're positive and people like to be around positivity, they like to be around people that make them feel good. I mean, and I mean, in a sincere way, not you know, like people can see through you. If you're, you know, fake and you're using them for something, you, you just, yeah. you don't ever want to just friend some, you know, somebody just to use them. I mean, they, yeah. that's wrong. Yeah. It doesn't you feel know? good. Like life, life any, should feel good. You right. Should, you, should, you should. You should. You can do it. You know. Right. Like you, your your heart and your mind 
should connect. Right. So something should feel good here and make sense here. So yeah. maybe someone's very charismatic, but they sh shoot up, you know, uh, methamphetamines all the time. Maybe not the best person to be a friend with, but, or maybe someone's good for your career, but you don't really like their personality. They're like cheating on their spouse. They're doing all these scams. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, maybe it makes sense to, to be friends with them for some reason, for some tactical reason, but you don't like them personally. So boom. So, uh, to your point, make sure the heart and the mind connects. And, and you want to be friends for just to be friends because you like them. And what, but what I would do to really answer the question, like how do you, how do you become friends with somebody? Just make sure nobody, nobody cares about your self-worth. People only care about their own self-worth. And that sounds cynical, but it's actually the most loving thing you can do mm -hmm. is to understand that everybody around you, the most important thing to them is their feelings of self-worth. So the way to become friends with somebody, and this is not a strategic way, it's to your point, be sincere, but make sure you acknowledge their worth. Make sure you point out to them, hey, that was good what you did. Hey, I watched what you just did. That was good. Hey, I watched that podcast. That was interesting. Hey, I saw what you wrote. That was interesting. Hey, I was just thinking about you. You're on, you've been on my mind lately because of these experiences that reminded me of things that happened to us. Mm -hmm. I wanted to touch base and see how you were doing. Always focus on their self-worth. Never try to focus on your own self-worth. Like I get emails all the time, people saying, Hey, can you tweet out my book? It would be really good for me if you did that. I don't, okay. I could say it's important to me what's, what makes them feel good, but deep down, it's not really that important to me. What's more important to me is I want them, uh, if I like the book, I'll, I'll tweet it out. I do that all the time. If I like them as an artist or a creator or whatever, I'll, I'll tweet out about them. If I want to be friends with them, I'll do a favor and, and stuff. But if someone's just reaching out cold and saying, do this because it will be good for them, I'm never going to do it because it shows them they're not thinking about what's good for me. And you always have to show that you're thinking about what's good for all the people around you without even a single thought about what's good for you. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.